I'm going to hand over to Katie, who's going to read out our Bible passage for this morning. Psalm 51. Thanks, Katie. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts, you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered at your altar. So the psalm we're looking at this morning is one of the most famous prayers of confession in the Bible. King David was the greatest king of Israel, and he lived around 1500 BC. And as the heading to this psalm describes, he writes this psalm after one of the most infamous events in his life. He had committed adultery with a woman called Bathsheba. Elsewhere in the Bible, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're told that his lust one day took hold of him as he was watching her bathing uh, from the vantage point of, of his palace. And without thinking, David took her, slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. David tried to cover up his adultery, but in the end, he had her husband Uriah killed, and he then married her. At that point, it seemed like the end of the matter. He'd covered it all up. And then soon after, Nathan the prophet came into the court and told David this story. 
It was a story about a couple of people in a town. One a rich man, the other a poor shepherd. Whilst the rich man enjoyed many fine things and owned much livestock, the shepherd's only treasure was a pet lamb that he treated like a daughter. One day the rich man had a guest come by and without warning, he took the poor shepherd's lamb by force and killed it and prepared it for his guest to eat. And this is how 2 Samuel chapter 12 records David's response. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who must do this, uh, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. So like the rich man in the parable, David had everything. But he still wasn't content with what God had given him. And so he took the one precious thing that belonged to another man, his wife. And then after he'd committed adultery with her, he murdered him, Uriah. And then he tried to pretend it didn't happen. But God knew. And God's words, God's word exposed David. He was called out. Nathan called him out. The story in 2 Samuel goes on to describe the tragic consequences of David's sin. But this psalm records how David, in the midst of what he'd done, truly repents of his sin. And what is amazing for us is that we have this psalm of repentance to guide us to. It gives us the words and shows us that restoration is possible so that no matter how broken our lives are, there is a way out of the burden of sin and a way to get through it, and a way to make us whole. So in Psalm 51, we're given a real and honest description of what true repentance looks like. And let me be clear, this is not simply about saying sorry to God. If that's all we understood repentance to be, then we do not understand the true power of repentance. True repentance, if done in an ongoing way, will enable a deep change from the inside out, as well as an apology. And look, we might be sitting there cynically thinking that the sins we're struggling with are impossible to overcome or, or that we're sinning in such a way and so often that it seems impossible to break. Well, perhaps by listening to God's word this morning, we might find a way through that. And although we're not going to be looking at all of this psalm in massive detail, I pray that as we read through it, we will learn this morning how true, how true repentance works and how to do that and how to walk rightly before God and come back into relationship with him to that place where our fellowship with God is sweet and our battle with sin is working. So let's look at this psalm now uh, under three headings. And the first heading is this. Repentance begins when we own our sin. Repentance begins when we own our sin. And we're going to look at the first six verses together. Just before we do that, let me just tell you a little bit about our family. We, we love watching You've Been Framed, which is a half hour TV programme that puts together funny video clips that people have posted on YouTube or, or they sent into the show. 
And fairly regularly on the programme, in different situations and families, there will be a clip that shows a parent walking into a bomb site of a room. The clip shows the walls and carpets covered in paint or melted chocolate. And then the camera usually pans around the room to show the destruction and then down to the culprit, typically a toddler, who's also covered in whatever the mess is made of. And most often, uh, the the, the clip records the, the parent asking the child, what have you done? And the child looks up at the camera with, with an honest face and swears blindly that they've got nothing to do with whatever the parent's talking about. Now, in contrast to that kind of you've been framed clip, Psalm 51 shows us that David owned his sin. He's been caught out. There's nowhere to hide. And rather than say, who me? What are you talking about? He totally owns what he's done. And we see this most clearly in the first six verses, which we're going to look at now in reverse. Let me read verse five and six. They say this, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. What David's saying here is that from the very beginning of his life, he has lived in rebellion against God. And we might think that sounds a bit harsh, but at the same time, it's quite realistic. It's true. The implication is that he is conceived with the seed of every sin in his heart. And that's the reality of the human condition. And David acknowledges that the state of every heart is that the seed of of sin germinates and it grows and it flourishes in each of us, which means the heart behind every sin is the same. So whether David commits adultery, or whether we lust after someone who's not our spouse, whether David commits murder, or whether we troll someone on Twitter wanting their reputation dead, the heart of those situations is fundamentally the same. Every heart wants God's rule over us dead, and every heart wants to rule in autonomy outside of God's control. Which means when we think about it, there's no difference in heart quality between David's heart and my heart, and your heart. God's word says we're all made of the same stuff, with the same attitude towards God. And David accepts that he's sinful in his inmost being. But then he says in verses three and four, he says this, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me against you, God. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Here he not only accepts he's sinful, but he takes full responsibility for what he's done. And notice he's not blaming his circumstances or blaming others or his upbringing, and neither is he justifying himself. He's not making excuses or giving reasons why he's committed adultery and murder. Neither is he making comparisons with others around him. And he could have done that, you know, He could have said about the other kings of other nations around him, he could have said, well, I'm not as bad as those Egyptian pharaohs, for example, or the pagan kings of Lebanon and Edom. They've done far worse things. Nor is he he making light of his sin. He's not saying, you know, my sin is no big deal. He's not deflecting. He doesn't say, okay, God, you've got me bang to rights. But you know what? You could have been a little bit nicer in the way that you went about exposing me? 
you know, those are all common ways in which we also avoid owning our sin. And that's what makes true repentance different to remorse. Remorse is when we're grieving the consequences of being caught or expressing the pain of sin, and yet we're still not willing to admit that we are responsible. That's remorse. It's being sorry, but only for what's happened to us. In contrast to remorse, David repents. And in that process, he takes full responsibility for his sin. And as well as confessing the state of his heart and the responsibility of his sin, he also acknowledges that his sin hits right at the heart of God. That's what he says in verse four. He says this against you, you only have I sinned, done what is evil in your sight. He's using a, a double emphasis here when he says those, those words, you, you only. It's an expression of deep passion and loyalty and love with huge emotional intention, intensity. You know, Jesus does the same um, when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I, how I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is expressing, expressing deep emotion there, deep loyalty, deep love. And that's what David does. He says it again, against you, you only have I sinned. It's a deep heart cry to God about the direction of his sin. His sin is against God. And that's where the impact of what he's done is most shocking and profound. He's not saying that he hasn't sinned against Bathsheba and abused his power to sleep with her, nor sinned against Uriah and his family name, nor even against the, the whole nation of Israel who are looking up to him for a godly leadership. No, his point is this. I have sinned against those people, but oh, I've sinned against God. And that is the most destructive consequence of my sin. He's saying he's trampled on God's heart without a second thought in the most awful way. So we've seen that these opening verses are foundational to what we understand repentance to be. And the joy for us is that David wants us to know what he's experienced. And that's why he says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. He wants us to imitate his words, his heart here, so that we can see the power of true repentance too. Because unless we see ourselves as truly what we are, we will forever be thinking we can do better on our own. Or we will be ever thinking, well, this is not me. I, I don't know where my sin has come from. I'm terribly sorry. It was a momentary relapse. Unless we own our sin and take full responsibility for it, we will forever be avoiding our hearts and this true condition of our hearts. And we will forever be avoiding God and facing up to God with what is in our hearts. And, you know, unless we see that our sin is against God, that as we sin, we trample on his heart, we will not acknowledge the seriousness of what we've done. We'll continue to sin in that way and will not continue, uh, and, sorry, and we'll continue to think it's not that bad. And that brings us to our second point. It's simply this run into the love of your Saviour. True repentance begins when we talk to God 
and cry out for mercy. Let me read verse 1 to you. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. This is David's starting point in the psalm. He turns to God and he appeals to God for mercy because God loves with an unfailing love. That Hebrew word for love in this verse is hesed. It's a special Hebrew word found throughout the Old Testament. And it means that God loves us with, as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's personal, it's intimate, it's deep, it's pure, it's real, it's vital, it's, 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 it's got vitality and life itself. And because David knows the character and nature of God's love, he knows he can come to God even in his unworthiness and he can appeal to God for mercy with confidence. Because God's not going to ignore his own hesed, his own love for his children. And David goes on because not only does he appeal to God's mercy in verse 1, but he also appeals to God's forgiveness in verse 7. He, 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 he prays to God, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He's not only confident in God's love, but he, he is also certain of his own unworthiness to undo his mess. So rather than finding a way to clean himself by trying harder next time or, or by trying to right the wrongs that he's done or by ignoring the seriousness of his actions, what he does is he appeals to God. God, you wash me. You cleanse me. You restore me. It's an appeal to God's nature again, because God wants his children to be right with him, pure and in a right relationship with him. As our psalm last week emphasised, as, as, as last week we saw God's word just inviting his children to come and eat at the table with God and be in fellowship with God. David knows that the only way he will be right with God is if God takes away his sin. And he doesn't leave it there either. David pleads with the power of God's work to change his heart. Look at me, look with verse 10 at me, look with me at verse 10. It says this, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. And then skip over to verse 12, it says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That's David's hope, that God would change his heart and his whole attitude to his loving father. And David has this hope because he knew that although he only deserved God's wrath, yet he was loved undeservedly and unconditionally. He knew and knows the nature of his God. And that's what David clings to here. He knew that by God's power and God's love, he would be forgiven, he would be restored, and he would worship his God once more and teach others this way of worship through forgiveness, restoration and salvation. And yet, whereas David only had the knowledge of God's nature to go on, we've something better. You see, whereas in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the son that Bathsheba bore to David died as a consequence of David's sin. God gave this world his son to die in order to pay for David's sin. So when David says in verse 11, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, God listens 
And God listens because years later on the cross, it was his own son who is cast from God's presence. It's his own son whom God the Father turns away from. It's God's son whose true sacrifice is a broken spirit. It's his bones that were crushed to enable David to rejoice. It's God's son who took David's sin and your sin and my sin and took the wrath of God's anger upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. Unless we forget, Jesus was not surprised by the kinds of sins that he had to take on the cross. He was fully aware of what he was about to suffer for. He was fully aware of the sins that he was about to pay for and die for. In his supernatural knowledge, he bore every sin that we have committed and will commit, knowing each one, naming each one, and bearing the wrath of God for each one of them. And he paid for the sins that no one else knows about in full knowledge of what we have done as he hung on the cross. He looked down the corridor of time at all those whom he would forgive, and he looked each of us in the eye, and he died under the wrath of God. And he declared to each of us, with love and compassion, it is finished. Your debt is paid. Your sin is dealt with. So rather than running away from God, David runs into God, knowing him and resting in God's love for him. And that's why we too can say that God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Because whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So David repents by owning his sin and by running into the love of his saviour. And there's one more thing that David does in this psalm, which is really important. And it's the last point I'll make this morning. And it's this. David renounces his sin. That's the third thing he does in this psalm. He renounces his sin. Now, if you're unsure of what renunciation is, it's a declaration of a desire to never sin like that again. And when we renounce our sin, we begin to change. And we begin to change because our hearts are fully engaged with the love of Christ. And we see what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And so we want nothing to do with what put him there. How do we renounce sin? Well, we renounce sin by realising the pain it causes the one we love. L let me illustrate with a picture I heard recently. When you think about how Jesus died for us, like he did, and knowing the reason why he died is because of what we do every day, think of this. How would you feel if your husband or wife, or perhaps your dearest friend, was shot dead by an arrow? And then the person who did it pulled it out and gave you the arrow as a keepsake. What, what would you say? How would you feel? I'd feel outraged. I'd be absolutely aghast to be given something that reminded me of what killed someone I love so much. It would be a sick thing to do to give me an, that arrow. It would be a sick object to keep. And in the same way, when you see Jesus dying on the cross for us, being cast out for us, being hated by God for us, then surely the last thing we want to cling on to is the very thing that killed him, our sin. 
whatever it is. It might be a bad habit, it might be internet porn, it might be anger, abusive language, hatred towards someone else in the church that's been going on for years, it might be selfishness, gossip, lies, stealing, lust. Every one of those things is an arrow and they are the things that Jesus died on the cross to bear. And if we know truly what he's done for us, if we truly dwell on his sacrifice and the enormity of his love, We will want nothing to do with whatever arrows we're holding on to. It's a hard-hitting picture, isn't it? But that's, that's the heart of renunciation. That's what renunciation is about. And this morning, as we listen to what God is saying to us, we could be in one of two places. On the one hand, it's possible we don't generally admit how bad we are. And in truth, I imagine this will describe most of us listening in this morning. The danger for those of us who are like this is that we won't truly repent of our sin because we don't think sin is a big deal. If this is us, can I encourage us this week to meditate on the love of Christ, to really immerse our minds and our thoughts in his love, in what he's done for us, in in, in that, that way he's looked down the corridor of time on the cross and forgiven us because the bigger we see Christ's love, the more real his sacrifice for us will become to us. And the more we will want to renounce our sin for his sake, the more we will want to let go of those arrows that we love and cling on to and renounce them because they are the things that killed Jesus and nailed him to the cross. On the other hand, we might consider ourselves deeply unworthy and we're beating ourselves up for all that we've done against God. Well, if that's you, also immerse yourself in the knowledge of Christ's love for us, and because he loves us, his death is sufficient. One commentator put it like this, just as there is no sin so small that it does not deserve hell, so too there is no sin so great that it can bring hell on those who repent. Isn't that great? If you're feeling unworthy this morning, let that truth sweep over you. And let the reality of Jesus's forgiveness absolutely dominate your thinking about your unworthiness. You are worthy because Jesus has taken your unworthiness on the cross. Do you know, perhaps we, this morning we've been challenged by God's word to truly repent of our sins, however great or small. Let's do that now. Let, let's own our sin Let's run into the love of our Saviour and let's renounce our sin out of love for him who gave every ounce of his glory to those who had no glory of their own. Let me pray now as we confess together all that, all that we've done against God. Oh, Father God, we praise you for this great psalm that teaches us what true repentance looks like. Father God, may we, um, may we read this through again and again and again and meditate on it. May this psalm become our prayer about our sin that has nailed you to the cross. Lord God, I pray that we would uh, declare our, our true unworthiness and yet come confidently to you, knowing that you forgive. Father God, may we run into your love. May we see our sin, declare it fully, 
and renounce it completely. Lord God, for the sake of your love, for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, who has died on the cross to take away our sin. Lord God, may we seek to walk in newness of life with him, who has given all his glory to us who have no glory of our own. Lord God, we, uh, we plead and pray the truth of this psalm into our hearts, into our lives this morning. And may we change, Lord God. May we change as you intend through repentance to change us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.